Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Eichen, and this is going to be a recording of my piece on David Tepper, one of the most fun and best investors I've studied. Um, it's titled The King of Bouncing Back. You can read the full the full piece on my Substack. I will also summarize the second piece I wrote about uh, my, my key lessons and takeaways. I'll be quoting David a lot. I'll try to make it clear when I'm quoting him. But uh, yeah, for the full piece, head over to my Substack. For better or worse, we're a herd leader. We're at the front of the pack. We're one of the first movers. First movers are interesting. You get to the good grass first, or sometimes the line eats you. So that's David in his own words. Let's get started. In late 2008, David Tepper experienced a third sharp drawdown of his career. His Appaloosa fund was down 27% as the financial crisis battered markets. He had survived previous crises, the Russian default in 1998 and the implosion of the dot-com and telecom bubbles in 2002. In each case, he'd roared back. We're consistently inconsistent, Tepper explained. It's one of the cornerstones of our success. Investing with David is like flying, with hours of boredom followed by bouts of sheer terror, a long-time client commented. He's the quintessential opportunist, investing in any asset class, but you have to have a cast-iron stomach. After successfully buying distressed debt in 2002, Alan Fournier gave Tepper a, a pair of brass testicles, cartoonishly huge and grotesquely veiny, as New York Magazine described them. The balls came with a plaque inscribed with the words, the most valuable set of all time. We're not afraid to lose money, hence the plaque, Tepper said. It should say, we're not afraid to make money. While working on a big trade, Tepper reported they called Fournier, who had departed to found Pennant Capital, screaming into the phone, I'm rubbing your balls for good luck. It's Tepper's high conviction, ballsy style and his humor that make him one of the most fun and fascinating investors to study. He once called himself the Mother Teresa of markets because he was always there to make sure securities don't go down more. Tepper came to Wall Street without an Ivy League degree, but with a chip on his shoulder. And after he was passed over for partner, partner at Goldman Sachs, he seemed to revel in his role as the outsider and regularly took pot shots at his industry. The media says that the hedge funds are the new masters of the universe, he chuckled. We're just a bunch of schmucks. Perhaps, but from Appaloosa's inception in 1993 until its conversion to a family office in 2019, Tepper compounded its capital at more than 25% net of fees, which at the very least made him and his investors quite wealthy schmucks. But at the end of 2008, in the depth of, depths of the financial crisis, the ballsiest investor on Wall Street was pondering his next move. How was he going to bounce back this time? Chapter 1. Growing up in Pittsburgh. They used to think buildings were black because that was just the color that made them but they were black because of the suit. Tepper was born in 1957, the son of an accountant and a teacher. The middle child of three, he grew up in Pittsburgh's lower middle class Stanton Heights neighborhood. He described himself as a big kid, a joker, and well-liked. We played touch football on the street and tackle football in the nearby cemetery, he recalled. We try to not hit the gravestones. Tepper was once kicked out of one class and told to roam the halls and act like the animal you are by a teacher. Local football games were canceled for two seasons because there were too many fights. But Tepper also developed an excellent memory and a knack for math. I could barely even talk at the time, but I could do math. He was analytical, remembered his brother Scott. 
we had a railing on our porch and he would be like, if I put my head in there, would I get stuck? Epa once told students at Carnegie Mellon that there's nobody on earth you owe more to than your parents. In life, you should recognize your parents. But the relationship with his own father was difficult. Tepper's father was not a warm and cozy guy who worked all the time. Tepper also once shared that his father was physically abusive, a cycle that Tepper was proud to break. And yet, Tepper learned important lessons from him. To always think about charity and those less fortunate, and to follow the golden rule, to treat everyone the same and with respect, both the president and the garbage man, as he said. Tepper caught the bug for stocks early on and started tracking his father's portfolio. When he had to pay his way through college, he figured out his first trading, trading strategy. I had some scheme going on where I was taking advantage of small moves in the market by buying options. It was like clockwork. I would put in orders at 16th of a point and sell at an eighth and pay a dollar or two for commission and come out way ahead. It was just a little anomaly in the market at the time and it was really steady income. It was funny. In high school, I never had an A, but in college, I almost never did have an A. Chapter two, Republic Steel. In 1978, Tepper earned a degree in economics at the University of Pittsburgh and worked as a credit and securities analyst in the trust department of Equibank in Pittsburgh. He left to get his MBA at Carnegie Mellon, to which he later contributed 55 million, and which now has the David A. Tepper School of Business. And he joined the Treasury Department of Republic Steel. About three months after I got to Republic Steel, he recalled, they gave a 70% across the board pay cut. His friends called him up with the words, great choice, Tep. Republic was on the edge of bankruptcy, which means that it did more finance deals than it had in its previous 100 year history, as Tepper recalled. And I learned from each one of them. Tepper used this experience to join a junk bond fund at Keystone, Keystone Mutual. A year later, he joined Goldman Sachs' new high-yield department. There's a lesson here, Tepper said. In life, get all the experience you can. While you're young, go for the experience versus the paycheck. The Goldman Sachs setback. In 1985, a 27-year-old Tepper arrived at Goldman Sachs where high yield was still a backwater. After six months, he moved from research to the trading desk, which was run by someone who wasn't good at understanding companies and was more familiar with how interest rates moved, so he wasn't really right for the job, Tepper said. Another six months later, Tepper headed the entire desk. When I got to Goldman, I changed the way junk bonds were traded. It was pretty radical, moving the whole market to trades on sectors. It used to be traded by maturities, which helped perpetuate the monopoly held by Michael Milken at Drexel Burnham. While his work was in bonds, Tepper always re remained close to the stock market. He recounted the crash of 1987. Going into the crash, I had set up my entire portfolio as just short. I had no long positions. I made a fortune during and after the crash, he said with a chuckle. It was very cool. During the early 1990s savings and loan crisis, Tepper bought holding company paper of distressed financial institutions like Republic Bank. He understood that the government couldn't break into the holding company to take any cash or assets, even if the underlying bank subsidiary failed. This experience with distressed financials would become invaluable later on. However, even though Tepper kept making the firm so much money, he was being passed over for partners several times. Brash and confident, he excelled at navigating markets, but not at office politics. When I was at Goldman, I'd say things to people like, do you know what a schmuck is? Go look in the mirror. 
Importantly, he also irritated the head of his division, John Corzine, due to his continued friendship with Bob Rubin. When I was taking positions, I should have gone to see John. John Corzin was a treasury trader and knew nothing about corporates, so I would never talk to him. I was still a young guy. I wanted to get the answers fast because I just wanted to get my job done, and I went to the guy that had the information. For a year, I continued to go to Bob Rubin. Rubin should have said, hey idiot, go and talk to John, he's the new head of fixed income. But I think Rubin liked to have the conversation. People say that I basically kept going to Rubin instead of Corzin, but it wasn't for political reasons. It was just because Rubin knew what was going on with equities, and Corzin was a treasury guy that didn't know corporates. I wasn't disloyal to him, but I wasn't one of his boys. I was stupid, because I was just working hard and wanted answers and to be as efficient as possible. I, was, I wasn't trying to screw or not screw anybody. It was probably a mistake. I wasn't trying to skip over. I was just naive. In another instance, Tepper was asked by a partner to make trades that he thought were inappropriate. He refused and notified the legal department. The partner had started a new fund to invest in bankruptcies and bankrupt companies, Tepper said, and I was supposed to make the trades for him. He was also the partner who controlled our restricted lists. He asked me to buy a company that he had just removed from the restricted list that day. It didn't seem right. In fact, I went to our legal department and told them what was going on. They said it would be okay after a lot of back and forth, but it still didn't feel right to me. So I refused again. I didn't get fired, but when I came up for partner, I got shot down, and I was incredibly upset. I just didn't give a shit. What was I going to do? Trade for them when I think they were doing something that's wrong? And then not see my kids again because I'll get blamed for the trades? So I didn't do the trades, but I didn't get made partner either. The horse leaves the barn. Life takes funny turns. That's really important. You've got a long life. Don't get upset by setbacks. Setbacks are another way to say opportunity. Tapper left Goldman and set up his own fund in 1993. He started out with a borrowed desk at the office of a former client, mutual fund legend Michael Price. Tapper wanted to name his fund after Horace, but Pegasus had already been taken, so he settled on Appaloosa. This proved useful because bro brokerage firms send information by fax, and if you were at the beginning of the alphabet, you got it 15 minutes faster. A young high-yield salesman at Jeffries named Dan Loeb immediately called Tepper. I want to cover you, Loeb told him. Unfortunately, I don't have a need for you. I'm unemployed, Tepper responded. That's okay. If you want to buy 50 bonds or something for your personal account, I, I just want to cover you. I'm sure you're going to end up someplace, Loeb said. By the time he started at Belusa, I had established a relationship with him. He became my biggest client, I was his biggest salesman. Loeb later rented a used desk in Tepper's weight room for $1,000 a month when he started his own fund. Tepper lacked connections and started Appaloosa with a modest $57 million in AUM, including $7 million of his own. In the beginning, he reportedly also had a partner, Jack Walton, a former senior portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who later left the firm. I had no family connections. Someone like me leaving and starting up a fund was Goldman's worst nightmare. Leaving Goldman was a scary proposition. They didn't give me my record. I didn't raise 50 million because I had connections. I was from the inner city of Pittsburgh. I didn't have any social contacts. The only thing I had was me. Emerging Market Adventures Tepper had sat next to Goldman's emerging markets desk and soon added the asset class to his expanding domain. He regarded it as just a different kind of credit analysis. 
You're basically doing country analysis, which wasn't really that hard for us to pick up, he said. And then it's just like everything else, analyzing all kinds of investments. You're trying to figure out that inflection point. His first wins came from debt crises in Latin America. In 1995, Appaloosa had big gains on positions in Argentina, Brazil, and Venezuela. In Argentina, the inflection point could be found in bank deposit flows. As soon as the money started coming back in the country, he remembered, that market took off. So we were able to figure out the right variable, to look at the right thing to focus on. And when it changed, we were fairly early and we were able to make a lot of money. During the Asian financial crisis, Tepper sent a team to Korea and discovered that the country was an export machine, a real industrial country. They were sacrificing their gold for the good of the country. We were frankly surprised by the level of sacrifice. Tepper then scored another win in, Co in Korea before getting tripped up by an unexpected Russian government default in 1998. Markets froze up quickly in Appaloosa, which had grown to 1.7 billion in AUM, lost 29% overall and 80 million on its Russian position alone. 1998 was hard, he remembered, because that was the first one we really went through. We took our book down, raised cash, and did different things than we had ever done. It was definitely the biggest screw up of my career. We had huge emerging market and junk positions that, were, that we sold down to avoid disaster, so we were able to act fast. Our biggest mistake was not realizing how illiquid markets could get so quickly. Many firms went out of business at the time, and at one point I wondered if we, were, if we would be able to survive. That was kind of an interesting lesson for a lot of people. But Tepper didn't panic. Instead, he scooped up more Russian bonds during the depths of the sell-off. The fund recovered with a 61% gain in 1999. After we lost a lot of money on Russian bonds in 1998, he said, we bought Russian bonds again and euro bonds. No bank wanted them on their balance sheet. We paid 16 cents on the dollar for Russian bonds of 28 with a 12 and 3 quarters percent coupon. We sold them for around 40 cents on the dollar. It was like minting money. It was all, almost worth all of the hell we had to go through. Dot-com distress. Tepper shorted the bubbly Nasdaq in 2000, but covered the position because of investor pressure, five weeks before the market crashed. In the book Alpha Masters, he called it one of the worst trades of his career. He pledged to never let his investors interfere with his decisions again. It's the manager's decisions to make the right calls for the portfolio, not the investors, he said. In 2002, the high yield market toppled over when the internet capex boom collapsed. Appaloosa lost 25%. Tepper then made big bets on the distressed debt of three of the then largest bankruptcies, Enron, WorldCom, and Conseco. Again, he emerged victorious from a bloodbath, up 149% in 2003. In 2002, 2003, after Enron collapsed, you remembered, we bought bonds of energy companies, Williams and El Paso, for 20 cents on the dollar. We also bought the bonds of Marconi and Conseco. The Delphi Distraction In the mid-2000s, Tepper successfully bet on commodity sectors like steel and coal, which benefited from the surge in Chinese economic growth. But he also got tangled up in a messy restructuring. In 2005, Tepper invested in Delphi, an automotive supplier that had been spun out of General Motors and became the largest bankruptcy to date. The company was buckling under high labor and pension costs and Tepper believed that cost cuts and a release from liabilities to GM could create a significantly more valuable company. He immediately bought up nearly 10% of the stock and later added debt and went to work. 
I saw a 10% chance of losing everything and a 90% chance of making money, so I had to roll the dice, he later said. These employees are facing an economic reality, he told his wife when she watched the news of job losses and wondered whether her husband was a good guy or a bad guy in this situation. Can't manufacture profitably in the United States with these salaries, he said. One way or another, these people will be displaced. Tepper first partnered with Cerberus for a 3.4 billion capital injection, but the deal fell through. In 2007, he agreed with the company on a new 2.5 billion recapitalization to take it out of bankruptcy. Tepper held his large stake alongside Michael Price, who commented, Delphi is an important example of the kind of thing David Tepper does. It makes a contrarian investment away from easy money and fights to unlock profits. But this time, Tepper walked away from the fight. By early 2008, the economy was weakening and much of the automotive sector was careening towards failure. Like a lot of people, we did not see how awful the economy would get, Tepper later said. The world got worse. Tepper had put in place covenants that allowed him to pull out of the deal if credit markets experienced distress, which he did. We had tests to protect ourselves. They questioned our protections. Delphi, Delphi was a big investment commitment that we thought had significant upside potential at the time. But the situation soon became very aggravating, he said. We thought we did everything right. It wasn't worth the time at that point. We're known as people that will fight till the end, but I'm not going to fight something just to fight something. I'll fight it if I have to, but I'm actually a lover and not a fighter at heart. The company then sued Appaloosa, alleging that Tepper pushed with the grace and diplomacy of a battering ram to play a central role in the reorganization, only to pull out. Appaloosa reportedly lost almost $200 million on the investment and a settlement with the company. I'm no longer mad, said former Delphi CEO Steve Miller. Tepper certainly has got a touch of arrogance, but he's really entitled to it. He's the kind of guy who moves ahead while you're trying to figure out what to do with your pawn. His ability to do math, really complicated balance sheet math in his head, was awesome. But he's impatient with us lesser mortals. Not only was Delphi a loss, it also distracted Tepper from another important trade. He later reminisced about some of his peers who'd made fortunes shorting subprime bonds. It wasn't that we didn't have the trade on ourselves, he said, but that we didn't have the extra time it took to figure out the best way to play it. If we weren't torn away with some of the Delphi crap, we definitely could have hit the subprime trade better. The crisis hits. In early 2008, Tepa reduced risk in his portfolio when Societe Generale announced a $7 billion loss from, tr- from its trading desk. Tepper expected the markets to sell off, but he was early and got whipsawed. Having extracted himself from the Delphi situation, he could focus fully on the unfolding financial crisis. He scaled back leverage, raised hefty cash balances, and raised a new fund called Thoroughbred, which remained largely undeployed. You don't make money if you don't take risks, he said, but you must take the right risks and have the right risk management. When the banks went down in September, we had already set up our analysis. Nah, analysis. What a funny thing. The entire market was starting to revolve around the health of the financial sector, and Tepper was looking for the inflection point. We were very liquid when September 2008 hit, he said. It was a financial sector event. We had been sitting there, waiting for it to tell you the truth. I mean, like everybody else, we were taking a little aback by the size of the declines in the marketplace, but the nine months leading up to it we were were, were kind of frustrating. 
spreads were very tight in the debt markets and we had just raised money for thoroughbred so we had a pretty big liquidity cushion we just did our due diligence and make sure to read all the indentures and credit agreements we could get our hands on we typically hold anywhere from 10 to 20 positions at a time that are really meaningful and during 2008 and 9 there was no trade more meaningful than financial so there was skewed upside versus downside he said Everything in the markets, whether investors knew it or not, was a bet on financials at the time. It was the same bet, regardless of what you bought. His first trades were reminiscent of the savings and loan crisis. In the fourth quarter of 2008, Tepper bought battered holding company debt of bankrupt banks like Washington Mutual and Wachovia. Tepper knew that even when the banks failed, the government is not allowed to take the holding company. You can have value in the holding company. We knew the structure. We had been following WAMU very closely. We knew there was still around $4 billion in cash from TPG sitting at the holding company, and it wasn't going down to the bank. We also knew there would be a potential tax refund. We knew we would be rewarded if we just be patient. It's important to note that Tepper at this point was supported by a team of traders and analysts. Distress debt investing especially is a team sport. Tepper worked closely with people who complemented his skills, such as Jim Bolin, a former senior debt analyst at Goldman and senior partner at Appaloosa. Tepper once described Bolin as the best pure analyst on Wall Street. Investors overreacted, Tepper said. Fortunately, Bolin and I were alive in 1990. It's a bitch to be old, but sometimes it's not so bad. How many people are around who went through that in the 1990s? We also made a lot of money on AIG. About one week before everyone thought they were going bankrupt, we bought $100 million of their commercial paper for $0.30 cents on the dollar. When they didn't go bankrupt, the paper was worth par. But we figured even if AIG did go bankrupt, it was not a bad price to pay. Despite its caution, Appaloosa dropped nearly 27% in 2008 as markets sold off across the board and credit markets froze. After returning 20% of capital for investor redemptions, Tepper entered 2009 with 30% cash in his main fund and 50% at Thoroughbred. Inflection In February 2009, the Treasury introduced the Financial Stability Plan and its Capital Assistance Program, which outlined terms for capital injections into large banks. The government would purchase preferred stock priced at a modest discount to the respective February 9th stock prices. Tepper quickly connected the dots. Investors had been burned by bank capital raises throughout the crisis, and there were rumors that the government would ultimately nationalize banks like Citigroup and Bank of America. But now the government had signaled its backstop. The government told me in writing what it would do and at what prices, he said. There would be no nationalizations. Instead, markets would start a thaw. This is ridiculous. It's nuts, 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 he told one of his partners. Why would the government break its word? They're not going to let these banks go under. People aren't being logical. Clearly, it was time to buy. When the white paper came out, Tepper said, the government tipped its hand. If the government was going to raise equity for the banks, it meant it was establishing a floor under the equity, indicating at what price that floor was. Essentially, the government was telling us that it wasn't going to let the banks fail. We were looking at the banks on the downside. We already had positions on the short side. We knew the banks pretty well. We knew the laws, the different layers of the bank structure. When the Treasury came out with their white paper, we knew it would be a securities law violation if they didn't do what they said in print. 
Depper and his team began buying the equity and debt of major financial institutions at deep discounts. I felt like I was alone, he recalled. No one was even bidding. Appaloosa scooped up as much as it could find, sometimes paying as little as five cents on the dollar for securities of AIG, Bank of America, Citigroup, and other banks. For example, Debra bought Bank of America preferred stock at 12 cents on the dollar, Citigroup preferred at 19, and AIG CMBS at 9 cents. There was a lot of paper available, he said, and we had a pretty high conviction that we were right. It was also deeply discounted. It was crazy. We actually bought the hybrid bond preferreds and some equities. We exchanged preferred for common for Citigroup and Bank of America. We were one of the biggest holders of this paper, next to the government. Most of the upside was on the preferred and debt side, he said. That's perhaps why so many people missed the trade. They just couldn't see it. Markets were still weakening, and by March, Appaloosa was down another 10%. Tepper was now on the phone himself to get a feel for the market. He was told that he was the only big investor doing much buying. Do I have to be a genius here? He asked. Normally, one or two others are buying along. along. This time, there was no one. Not even the guy in Omaha. Some investors asked him about how he hedged his trade. A shotgun, Tepper answered. That's what we'll need to protect our homes if I'm wrong. It was like that scene in Trading Places, he said, with the orange juice futures. The whole market and the whole world were in pure panic. Everyone was too scared to do anything. Epilogue. At the end of 2009, Tepper had cemented his reputation as one of the best investors of his generation. Appaloosa was up 132%, or $7.5 billion. Tepper had been a billionaire already, but now he was the richest man on New Jersey and famous to boot. He'd always cultivated the image of being a middle-class dad trapped in a rich man's body. Now, he was ready to be rich. What do you think I should do with it? He joked with a reporter. I could buy an island. I could buy a jet, but I have net jets. I could get myself a 22-year-old. Instead, in 2012, he spent $50 million on the 6,000-square-foot Hamptons home formerly belonging to John Corzine, the man who had once blocked his ascent to partner at Goldman. Tepper had the house torn down to build his own mansion. You could say there was a little justice in the world, he said with a grin. After being a minority investor in the Pittsburgh Steelers for many years, Tepper bought the Carolina Panthers in 2018. He also started to reduce the amount of time he spent in the office, noting, they will survive without me being there all the time. You can't work the same way at 52 as you did at 35. And in 2019, he announced that his firm, with 13 billion AUM, of which 70% already belonged to employees, would be converted to a family office. Tepper had returned assets to investors before, noting that, Appaloosa is more art. It is hard to create art. It can't be that big and create art. Bouncing back for the third time had been his masterstroke, completing the painting of a lifetime. So I love this story for many reasons. Tepper was an outsider and not afraid to walk his own path. He was not afraid to buy when the market was in a state of panic and he emerged from every drawdown a better investor. Tepper kept evolving and he's long left behind the narrow lane of pure credit and distressed investing and he kept having fun. While some other investors who made fortunes during the crisis turned into doomsday profits, always looking for another tail event, 
Tepper recognized that the exceptional volatility would be followed by a lengthy return to normal. He didn't let his win define him, and he returned to his bread and butter of marrying macro conviction with bottom-up diligence. To get to the new normal will be a grind, he said in 2010. This is really boring compared to what we just had. So you got to grind, grind, grind. But boring doesn't mean you can't make money. His appearances on CNBC, such as in 2010 and 2013, became closely watched and market moving. Aside from his book of public equities, Tepper was also active again in distressed and reportedly made close to $1 billion in the restructuring of Caesars Entertainment. All right, so this concludes the sort of the David Tepper story as I wrote it up. And we'll move on to the second part where I'll share some observations, some some thoughts on, on what we can learn from him. And it's been half an hour, so if you're still here with me, you must have a genuine interest in studying great investors, great entrepreneurs, great people in business. Um, so I'm going to plug my Substack again. It's Necker, N-E-C-K-A-R, substack.com because that's sort of what I enjoy learning about. And um, and I think it's a it's both a really interesting and a really treacherous topic because there's sort of this buffet of lessons and what we learn from any individual person, the real takeaways always depend on who we are and where we are in our lives, whether we have capital or not, you know, what business we're in, what assets we're dealing with, our temperament, our skills, our capabilities. These people are all outliers in, in many ways, and we can't just use them. There, there's no template there, right? So I, I always use this Bruce Lee quote, absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. So I think it's a good idea to study all of these people, but we must also keep in mind that we have to just integrate all of this in, into what is uniquely our own style and our own lives. And I want to preface the next part with just a couple of observations. One is that Tepper seems a little bit like a like a paradox at times because he's this hybrid of a trader and an investor. And he sort of takes this macro view on, you know, a year or several years on a, on a certain theme or a certain sector and then makes that a big part um, of his book. And then he expresses that through individual securities um, uh, across you know, across the capital structure. And that's then backed up by the deep work of his analyst team, right? He, he's, not an, he's not an analyst himself, but he's supported um, by, by a group of people who do a lot of legwork. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of work that's sort of invisible to the outside, and it's easy to miss that. And if you go to a website like whalewisdom.com, you can... You can look at charts of his portfolio, at least his equities portfolio, right, as indicated in 13F filings, and you, you'll see the, the his rotation through sectors over time. And at one point, the book is all financials, and then there's a big chunk of energy, and then there's going to be a big chunk of, of technology. And in one case, the technology is sort of things that emerge from distress. And in another case, it may be that he's taking a bet on um, technology that bets from, uh, benefits from COVID, or something else. 
right? So there's a lot of different ideas that, that get reflected in this book, and they range from just sort of writing a certain market regime to specific distress in a sector. And I think it's easy to misunderstand that complexity, and we're not seeing a lot that's going on. We don't have his letters. We don't always know the, the reasoning in, in hindsight. Um, but I think it's easy to look at him and sort of get the impression that, oh, okay, he, he drew down a bunch of times and then he made a big bet. So either the lesson is I'm going to just, I just have to make a big bet when something's down huge. Or um, he was sort of a, a gambler and, and got lucky. And I think both of those are um, just completely off the mark. But I can see how people um, get to that conclusion. And I'm just going to frame all of this um, with one one quote that I really like of his. Does being a risk taker mean not being afraid of losing money sometimes? Then I'm a big risk taker. Does it mean putting the firm in jeopardy? Then in that case, I'm not a big risk taker. And that that's, I think, a, a nuance that's easy to miss because he does come a, across as sort of, you know, rash and, and, and happy-go-lucky and like this this guy who, you know, is, is happy to, to make a big bet. And it's it's easy to miss that the the high conviction bets booking and making betting his entire book on, on sort of one big idea came when the setup had become very, very asymmetric, when something was really bombed out and, and he thought that the downside had just sort of um the fundamental downside, that the risk of the downside for a longer period of time had, had disappeared. Um, and also in those cases, he took down the leverage in his book. So he he sort of regulated the risk. If, if risk in the portfolio uh, in the security selection went up, he took the portfolio, the leverage risk down. And the... The other nuance, of course, is that he didn't, these were not decisions he made from the gut, but these were sort of assets that he and his team had, had long researched and, and understood really well at a fundamental level. All right, first lesson, don't do it for the money alone. So Teppers said this thing, I was never afraid to go back to Pittsburgh and work in the steel mills. And and I think the what frames his entire work is sort of, that he's passionate about the business, that he's passionate about being being the best, having the best track record, and that he understands that losing money or drawing down and taking risks is part of that game, but also he has this sort of this fearlessness. And it, it comes from this very deep conviction and this deep, deep drive. And I think he's making the point that if you're if you just do it for money, you're you're not going to have that um, that very deep deep well from from which to pull conviction and, and confidence in yourself when you're when you're down. The second lesson is the nature of being lazy competitive, and um, I'm just going to read out this this quote. I'm lazy competitive. I have a com- combination of laid back competitiveness on the field of play. You see that with some athletes that come in with earphones on and are hanging with the music. And then when you get them on the field, they're focused and they're fierce. So in the outside world, I'm that easygoing person. But if I'm on the field, I want to win, and we win a lot. Um, I mean, this one to me is pretty straightforward, right? Like he, in, in all of these interviews, he comes across as this funny guy 
very affable, very, very fun to be around. Um, but that is not his personality when he's at his desk and it's during the trading day and he's trying to win and that's what matters. And there's anecdotes and from, from people who are on his, on his team. And, you know, he's not, he's not the same person on CNBC as he is in his office when he's, um, when he's fierce, right. And fiercely competitive. And it, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have like fun at work or, or can joke around, but it also doesn't mean that he is just a joker, right? There's multiple, there, there's, there's many facets of personality to him. And I think with him, it's easy to confuse that. Um, yeah. And, and I think he would be a tough boss to work for, honestly. So I, I don't, I don't see myself doing that. Anyways, next lesson, be smart enough to get lucky. So this is just a quote I, that I also loved. We were lucky, but I would rather be lucky than be smart. But you have to be smart enough to put yourself in a position to be lucky. Appaloosa does that again and again. So this is sort of a riff on this, this saying that it's better to be lucky than smart on Wall Street. Right? You can be very smart and the market can still, you can still be wrong in timing. Um, and, and everybody kind of max um, gets it right, like 50, 55% of the time, something like that. And so, yeah, you, you want to be, it's better to be lucky than smart, but it's not good to count on being lucky, right? You can't do that either. And I, I just love this idea. You have to be smart enough to put yourself in a position to be lucky, meaning you have to sort of figure out, see a little bit ahead of time, like, okay, what's coming down the pike? And let's, let's do work on that. Let's prepare ourselves. Let's put ourselves in a position to be lucky, put in, put in place the right structures in terms of locking up liquidity, raising cash, or having the right people on the team, creating all of the things in the ecosystem that ultimately make you um, set you up to then be lucky, meaning being able to take advantage of the opportunity um, when it comes along, right? It's sort of a riff also on the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. The other, all right, next lesson is find your own style. And I talked about that already. And his style, he says, you have to be unemotional and do the hard analysis, then have deep conviction. That's sort of him, right? He's he's very unemotional, under pressure, and he makes good decisions. He has he himself and he, his team. They do a lot of bottom-up analysis, and then he has this ability to see things and and have deep conviction on a on a macro level. I have a bunch of quotes for that, but that's sort of it. That's him, and you and me and everybody else. Some of us may uh, may be able to do something similar, but that's his unique style, and we all have to find our own. Uh, next lesson is ahead of the herd, right? And this he he says this in a million different ways, but basically, the quote is: "We lead the herd; the street follows us. We don't follow the street. We're not afraid of risk. We don't seek out risk. We reduce risk." I don't know how you can really make money if you're not willing to lose money. That's what separates us from everybody else. So it's a sort of in crucial situations when something looks really risky, when there's blood in the street, um, to be willing to step out and, and be that contrarian, be early. Um, that doesn't mean you always do it, but in those crucial moments, it, it, it's basically having, having courage and being the first mover. And he says, if you look at our history over the years, we're usually the first mover in a country or situation time and time again. 
the nuance, of course, or the caveat is uh, you, you can't confuse this with an invitation to buy or rush in just because there is fear or a decline in price. And don't bet the farm. And uh, talked about that already. And yeah, again, he says, when we, ha- when we have our big years, we do it unlevered because people take advantage of you when you have too much leverage. Um, and he says, nobody has been down and come back like Appaloosa in the history of hedge funds. Okay. Um, oh, and this one's good. Despite my confident confidence, I still have humility. I know the market is still smarter than I am. I always felt I'm not a fancy guy. I'm not worried about losing my money. I'm worried about losing my investors' money. So what is he saying? Yes, he, in those crucial moments, he steps out, he has conviction, and he is early and that means two things it means he has to still put in place he has to take down leverage and and make sure that the price swings that come after won't kill him because he's seeing the setup but he doesn't he he realizes or has the humility that to realize that the market can still do um crazy things and also yeah you if you want to (laughs) so It's, it's tricky because there is an element here where it could be argued that if some things hadn't happened and some of these markets hadn't snapped back as quickly, um, right, there is path dependency and it could have been a, a different outcome, a, a less, less favorable outcome to him. Maybe not fundamentally over time, but being right more slowly when you're down matters because there's there's feedback loops right and investors can pull money your team can just get discouraged and and people can leave there's um in his case maybe not so much but overhead there's 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 things that can then affect the stability of the business um all right bouncing back in life and markets this is from his speech in 2018 at carnegie mellon and i think that one's one worth worth watching if you're interested. And he says, if I go through my career, it was a lot of disappointments. Just a lot of things that didn't go right, but those aren't the things that make you. It's how you bounce back and where you move on from there and how you, what you learn from those things. And then he gets, he gets into this funny sort of flow. He talks about the river flowing and you never stop dancing and you just keep pushing forward. He, he just sort of riffs on it. And then he's like, Ah, this should have been part of the commencement speech. Anyway, this one's a fun one to watch. And it's sort of the overarching theme in his life, whether it's at Goldman or Republic Steel, probably earlier than that too, as well as at at Appaloosa. Um, Yeah, things go wrong. Um, There are setbacks. And you just have to, how you act in those moments and how you come back is, is what can really define, define your life. The next one is unemotional under pressure. And uh, he said, I used to get really upset when I had a down year. Now that I've been doing it, it this long, I have a much easier time. What matters ultimately is the track record I have over time. And he says, uh, oh, this one's great. We don't get much pressure from our investors. Investors don't leave Appaloosa. We have a lot of original investors. This is a good place to be during a panic. If you came to our office when we're down 20%, you wouldn't see a difference. It's another day in Appaloosa. The best time to invest with me is when I'm down. So 
obviously, once you're through this a couple of times and the, the returns bouncing back are great, your investors stick around. But that's for him the case now or, or it was um, after the financial crisis. Um, so obviously, it can be a very different experience if you don't have that track record. But the important thing is that he says we don't freeze. We won't stop if we're down a little bit. We're pretty unemotional when we invest. And that's huge because otherwise you won't come back because you'll start to make bad decisions being down. But it's also only partially something that can be, um, right, I, I think to some extent that's innate, right, being able, unemotional and being great under pressure. Um, so there's probably a, a nature versus nurture debate to be had here. Um, all right, a couple more. Staying nimble, which is he's returned capital over time, and so he makes the... The point that having a smaller fund, having a fund that's too large constrains him, having a smaller fund uh, allows him to be nimble and trade around. And there's this one moment in 2011 when he started the year being in financials and the European financial crisis or the euro crisis happens, um, all of that stuff sells off. He's asked why his performance was was good despite that or, or wasn't terrible, but despite that. And he said, the dirty secret of Appaloosa is we've been really good macro players for the past five years. Um, we sold the banks and bought them back later. We didn't sit on the book. We would rather have a distressed cycle. It's our bread and butter. But we're pretty good at figuring out how markets will run. And so that's something to keep in mind, right? Um, with somebody like him, he changes his mind and he trades around and he doesn't and he hedges. What you see in his portfolio is not... Um, a long-term buy and hold strategy and um, there's there's a lot of movement there's a lot of the, if you're not the kind of person who's very in sync with the market such as he is you have to be very very careful in terms of what lessons you adopt all right optimists win in the long run <laughs> this is a great saying we have this saying the worse things get the better they get when things are bad they go up when bad becomes good after an inflection, people are still in a bad mood. We are good at the inflection point. People get too negative and take things down to crazy levels. So this is sort of the, the value investor's credo. Things go wrong. There's a crisis. There's disappointment. People get hurt. They throw in the towel and things just sell sell down way past the uh, fair value to, to big discounts. And um, his point is, what, what does he say? The point is markets adapt. People adapt. Don't listen to all the crap out there, right? At the end of the day, he deals with a lot of stress, but he's an optimist. He's a long-term optimist in the in the economy, and he's willing to buy things because he believes that down the road, things will get better, markets will adapt, people will adapt, and buying decent assets will at, at, at deeply discounted prices will lead to a good outcome. And if you don't have that mindset, then just like everybody else, you won't be you won't be able to to buy in that situation because it's gonna look too frightening, too scary, too pessimistic. And of course, hopefully the optimists in the long run are right. All right. Last lesson is keep having fun. And one of the best things about reading up on on Tepper or watching his videos is just like he's joking around all the time. He's taking all of these pot shots at his own industry, whether it's the sell side or other hedge funds. He's just making fun of it all. And that makes him, at least in public, very likable. Um, but it also 
I don't know. I, I, I just, to me, it makes, makes it a lot more fun to study him, um, to listen to him. And I think to the extent that can be cultivated, uh, I think, I think it's something to, uh, to try and, and, and try and bring the, bring the fun back in any event. Talking of having fun, I hope you enjoyed this. And again, I can only encourage you to check out my Substack if you're interested in great investors and so forth. Um, yeah, until next time. <laughs>